2: is an outrage broadcasting outrage.
0: live from the kvec studios in san luis obispo what
2: economy are you talking about it's about. time about.
0: for mortgage matters, mortgage.
2: Mortgage matters. Mortgage. all right good morning everybody welcome to mortgage matters you right. a, whip, whip, whip. You a, I, I wanted like a <laughs> crowd
0: a crowd noise but uh, right. where's Woo! the best oil? that's, that's that's my best clap. That's <laughs> no, a pathetic
2: crowd noise. That's like a
1: poetry clap. Uh,
2: yeah, golf clap. Like somebody just made like a six-foot pot.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. Or finished a haiku. You got to work
2: on your
0: crowd noise game, Jim. Yeah, I got to do that one a little bit more. We need, huh, anthem.
1: We need anthem clap. We right? do, actually. Yeah.
0: Would you ever figure out what the Mortgage Matters listeners are. Like, you know, Motor Mouse got motorheads. Very intelligent. You know?
2: Yeah, I don't know. Figure out what they we, are. We kicked some stuff around. Yeah, never came up
0: with anything that really stuck, though. Right. I mean, mortgage heads just doesn't sound.
1: Yeah. Doesn't
2: sound nerdy enough.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: But then data heads sounds too technical. It's got to have alliteration.
1: Yeah. It's got to have alliteration in my book too. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Hmm. Well,
2: Mike points in the studio with us today. We got a guest lined up to talk about some. uh Tax benefits of a ten thirty one exchange. So really looking forward to that piece. it's a um it's a good conversation, and very few people actually know about this strategy. So excited to bring that news around. so we'll talk about that here in the in the coming part of the show. And for now, just kind of wanna jump in and touch base on uh, the whirlwind that this week was. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty crazy. We've seen real lift in the bond market. Uh, got a 10-year spending this week in the 2-3 range as the dust continues to settle from last week's Fed announcement. Um, pretty excited about that, I'm going to say. Feels like Christmas is coming early, doesn't it, Mike?
1: It sure does. I mean, we were on, la- we were on last Saturday, and we kind of mentioned that the unveiling of of what we believe – the Fed decided to do and why, and now the markets are surely aware that this is it's time to really dig in. Right. And Um, every consumer that, I mean, every consumer in the last 12 months was like, oh man, we missed the bubble, but at least we got some rates that were just around five.
2: Yeah, some of the people that I talked to about refis this week felt that, so these are people that bought their house like in the last year, and felt like they were chasing rates upward and felt um, mm-hmm. stressed about that during their purchase transaction. One of the gals that I'm helping, Katie, she asked me, she said,, uh, it was their first time home purchase? So uh, I've never refied before. So lots of questions about the process and just wanting to make sure um that she understood what was going on. So conversation, as you could imagine, went something like, um, there's no real minimum amount of time." Uh, generally speaking, that you need to own a house before you can refinance it. And of course, there's some urban legend kind of speak out there about refiing. And, you know, I always hear those words echo in the mind of, you know, like grandpa telling me, well, you got to save a whole percentage point in order to refi. And so, um, talking about that and understanding that, that, Really isn't good advice anymore because it was good advice when loan, loans, yeah. When loan amounts were 30, 50, 70,000 bucks, that's pretty sage advice because what it was really saying, the truncated version, um, that statement is really saying make sure that the cost of the transaction mm-hmm. versus the monthly savings that, that you really understand a short term benefit there. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to identify real benefits soon. So like I said, when loan amounts were really small, man, you'd have to save a whole point in order to be able to save a 100 bucks a month and offset the, you know, however much loans cost back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas today, man, people are mortgages, our average mortgage in Central Coast Lending is pushing 400,000. And so that being the average, um, a half a point worth of interest savings makes a huge difference in terms of the monthly payment and the overall expense costs over the life of the loan. Definitely. So yeah. So anyhow, just kind of walking these clients through this conversation again, talking about the cost and the savings and the break-even point and whether or not it's the the right thing to do. There's a kind of a nervousness amongst some of these people that bought homes in the last year. Um, just weren't necessarily psychologically ready to be facing a refi right now yeah. and are are cautious and careful to make sure they're not making the wrong decision.
1: For sure. I mean, you talk about things that were different. Loan amounts were different. I mean, let's talk about the outside, the new variable that wasn't even on the table back when grandpa owned a house. Mortgage insurance, right? You got to take on mortgage insurance. Now, back in the... So FHA was created... F h a loans, excuse me, were created in nineteen thirty four. Before that you had to have half down on a house to even get a mortgage, yeah. well, many of the terms,
2: you know, and this goes back to that bigger conversation about Fannie Mae and and Freddie Mac,
1: which and, we always like to pull in,
2: yeah. So they're, I think Fannie. The FHA program, you might be a touch early on it. Um, I generally accept that we're like 39 for Fannie Mae. I think it was 1939. But the bottom line is looking for a way to normalize home loans across institutions, right? Mm -hmm. So it used to be you'd be at the mercy of your local bank. And Mm -hmm. I picture those old timey movies where, you know, Bill the farmer walks in to the banker that was his dad's bank and his bank. And it's the local bank. It's where he takes his paycheck on Fridays. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that process of what did that bank have to offer? What were their terms and their requirement? What were their rates and how much down payment, those kind of things. And what we know is that, when left to that bank level, especially regionally, depending on the different economies and the the risk tolerance of specific areas, as you know, parts of the country are more liberal or conservative than others, and Absolutely. that would bleed into the bank environment as well. Absolutely. So, with the advent of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and FHA, and these programs rolling out, it was really just a normalization of the qualifying criteria and and. You know, so many benefits come from it, one of which is it allows banks to be able to sell loans to each other, or transfer servicing, to be able to um, buy a loan and understand the DNA of that loan, to know how the credit was evaluated, those kind of things. So it created that whole secondary market, which basically just brought liquidity to the market. Mm -hmm. Um, Also established those guidelines for being able to have lower down payments. And like you mentioned, FHA on the scene offers this low down payment option for people that don't have all of that savings. That'd be the mortgage insurance route. Mm -hmm. When I first got into the business, mortgage insurance was almost never used. It was readily available, but almost never used because seconds were all the craze. Got it. If you had 5% down, you'd do what was called an 80155, right? 80% first, 15% second, which would avoid the mortgage insurance mm-hmm. and then you'd put your 5% down. And so we had 801010s and we had 8515s, you mm-hmm. know. So we had those kind of things, but it was generally a second was what was utilized
1: and um that's how they 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 spread the risk out.
2: Yeah, right? And so, but the person in second position, they're a lien nonetheless, but they're in second position, which means if there was ever a default or some sort of problem, they risked not being paid.
1: Hence the um, higher rate on this. Higher rate, shorter
2: term, uh, more conservative. Um, Option to balloon. Yeah. And so today in the market, we, most home buyers in the last 10 years that didn't have 20% down payment ended up in a loan with mortgage insurance. hmm and consequently, and this is where I believe you're going with this, is that in, yeah, there's some savings to be had in in lowering your interest rate where possible. There's also some savings to be had in eliminating or even just reducing your monthly mortgage insurance cost, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the mortgage insurance piece of of our business and the mortgage statements for a lot of consumers now are, Almost, I would say three quarters of our first time home buyers must have mortgage insurance due to the amount of liquidity or assets they can put into the closing of the transaction. However, I've got many clients that see that as a value because when you say, hey, look, how are you going to come up with another 10%? If I wait three years, Mike, I can get the 10%. I can save it. I can touch it. I can put it in the checking account. We're saying, Whoa, 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 buddy. This train's going down the track. It's
2: appreciating at 5% a year. Exactly. So you're chasing, you know, picture a a mile-long race. And so you start off on on the pace you have of the one-mile pace, right? Mm -hmm. It's called seven minutes. And you're huffing along. Well, what happens at the end of the first quarter mile where they're like, okay, well, now it's 1.2 miles? Mm Mm-hmm. Keep running, buddy. Yep. Uh one point four miles, one point six miles. That's literally what's happening right now with people that are attempting to save it.
1: That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. You do get exhausted.
2: Well, you get exhausted. The goal seems ever further away. And you start wondering, man, am I gonna finish? Mm-hmm.
1: Um and meanwhile, what happens with rates is an independent variable. And if they're going up, yeah, then which just power. That,
2: yeah. So there's a there's a cost to weight analysis in there that's not very difficult to do. Uh, make some straight-line projections about the value of real estate. Um, You, of course, can make some deductive uh, guesses at what the market might do in terms of interest rate. Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of going full circle, this was the conversation that I was having with this gal, Katie, this week, was, um, yeah, you only bought your house seven months ago, and it is time for you to refi, kind of walk her through, what the cost is, what the savings, they had a break-even point that's like 11 months on the closing cost of the loan versus what they're gonna save per month. That's a no-brainer. Dynamite. Um, And as this starts, by the way, we're looking as loan officers that are going back through the pipeline, we're looking at the lowest hanging fruit first, Mm -hmm. the absolute no-brainers. So Mm -hmm. if you're getting a call this week, it's because you're an absolute no-brainer. But yeah. Yeah, and so these guys had bought with 5% down their house has appreciated and in only um, the seven months time, it looks like they picked up about $30,000 worth of equity. So we're going to get them a lower interest rate. We're also dropping their mortgage insurance and it's not a tremendous drop. It's going from 200 bucks a month because they had 5% equity and now we believe they have 10% equity. Mm -hmm. So we're dropping them into the next tier of mortgage insurance, um, which reduces by about fifty bucks a month. Mm-hmm. So layer that on to that um, savings, and and then at the end of the at the whole end of the conversation comes this thing about well, I could refi. She said, well, aren't I going back to thirty years? You are. In this case, by default, you would be. However, some people would elect to keep making the payment you're already paying. Get a new loan with a lower rate and a lower payment, lower mortgage insurance. And now you save, let's say you save two hundred and fifty bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Well, the payment goes from thirty five hundred to thirty-two fifty. You can absolutely keep paying thirty five hundred. Mm-hmm. And instead of that two fifty, which was previously being squandered on mortgage interest insurance. and mortgage insurance, yeah. is now going towards principal. Yep. And so sometimes refinancing for the the cash flow aspect, of it isn't the primary objective, um, I think I probably share the sentiment with most consumers in the world is I don't want to pay these banks any more than I have to. Yep. I am resentful of any amount of mortgage interest or insurance, right? I, I want those figures to be as low as possible for me, and I'd prefer to use that money as Either paying my loan down faster or even just fund money or just throw it in fund. the savings bank yeah. of, well, I'm not going to waste it on interest. I'm too smart to waste money when things like this happen. And so I was telling Katie, I said, you know, when we set this up for you seven months ago, I figured you were probably going to refi in two or three or five years, you know, coming off of your, in their case, 4.75 interest rate. Mm-hmm. Um we were led to believe seven months ago we were led to believe that the feds were going to rate uh, raise rates three to six more times, which was going to constitute, you know, three quarters to a point and a half higher than where they started. Mm-hmm. So it would have been five and a half or six and a half or something in the next twenty four months. and then you'd have to wait for the whole next economic cycle. Um, so I was explaining to Katie his hey, What's happened right now is really just dumb luck for you that this mm-hmm. door has opened up for you much earlier than anticipated. And um it makes it to where it makes some sense to to look at doing a refi. And maybe you'll do it again in two years. Maybe we'll be able to get you down to three. you it's know you possible. never know
1: it's quite possible. It starts to become a situation too where I like there's no question, Jason that others in our industry right now are literally sharpening spears and getting into their database and calling people. This is totally unexpected. Um, with regards, not the rate pause by the feds, the response that the market's giving the interest rate response market, the interest rate market is responding in such a way that, I mean, you have got to sit with your loan officer. And if you can't remember who your loan officer was, you I'll to, be your loan officer. You need to call in the Central Coast <laughs> Lending because here's what we do. We're not just sending letters that say, hey, here's your new rate. Click this QVR code or QRC code and then you can complete an application. We take time to say, hey, how long are you going to be in the house? Is this worth it? Let's look. I mean, did you in the last 12 months get a promotion? Has your kid stopped going to childcare? Is there freed up money? Should you look at a 15 year? What are you thinking about doing in the house? We've got a renovation loan right now that HUD has put out no cost to the borrower at 4.5%. You can borrow money against your property, make it better, add that third bathroom, you know, make, make the fourth bedroom happen, get the permits done all through the equity in your house. Obviously, if you bought your house so seven months ago and you put 5% down, you're not gonna have a ton of equity. But the financing piece that we handle for you is so important when these rates are down to reconsider. It's like, it's like getting a job offer from a recruiter that you just have to sit down and think about. It's too good to pass over. You know, They say love the one you're with, but sometimes it makes a lot of sense to, to revisit these things, and now is the time. Um, we're going to take a quick break as we get ready to go into the next segment of the first hour. I just wanted to let our listeners know that we've got um, a really great guest today, Bill Angove, coming on the air with us. Um, he's with with asset preservation they're a qualified intermediary and we'll get into what that means but he helps assist investors with a 1031 exchange which is a great great way that our tax code allows investors in real estate to take their earnings their profits and potentially re-leverage them into other assets in real estate so that you don't have to pay the capital gains tax at the time it's basically like borrowing your capital gains money to buy something else. Right. And I'm excited to have him on the show, especially with you, Jason, all your knowledge and the stuff you've dealt with over the years. I think it's going to be a great conversation. So stick around for that when we come back from the break. We'll have a couple more things to talk about and then we'll bring Bill on the air with us. We'll be right back with more Mortgage Matters.
2: all right guys welcome back to mortgage matters i'm here with mike points we're thrilled to be with you for this time today and uh last show of march last show yeah, of the first quarter. Yeah, baby. And what a first quarter it was. I said this before but um really pumped up right now uh the tail end of last year with rates moving higher and the business kind of becoming purchase business only. You know, you're kind of staring at tighter margins and wondering how high could these rates go and how much harder am I going to have to work just to tread water. And then, boom, these lower rates come out, and it's like manna from heaven. Yeah. We've got um, so much to look forward to right now, and it's a perfect timing that is right here on the cusp of home buying season. Oh, my gosh. Uh, So many people here are having, um, you know, keep talking about refis. I don't want to beat this dead horse to death here, but um, with rates (laughs) coming down, you look at at the – the savings aspect for so many people. It also means if you're a home buyer, That's right. here we got an opportunity for you here to um, increase your affordability. Does that mean maybe you get up into the next price point? It might. Um, interesting thing, you know. I always say this, but a, a simple rule of thumb is about a hundred thousand dollars. Every hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, mortgage. that you borrow you're looking with taxes insurance and mortgage insurance the average home buyer is about call it 600 bucks a month that's a touch on the conservative side but it gives you an idea if you buy a $300,000 house you should be prepared for an $1,800 a month payment yeah $500,000 house $3,000 $3,000 a month payment. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly scientific, but Curtainier. it's a great rule of thumb for people that are wondering, hey, what what would I qualify for? How much? You know, I, I only pay 1800 a month in rent, and I could probably stretch to 2400 What What does that equate to in terms of buying a house? It's a $400,000 house. Yeah. So that being said, when interest rates drop and that same payment now is going to Is going to be because of the interest rate about 200 bucks less a month. You could also, as a home buyer, you could equate that 200 bucks a month to about a third of a hundred grand. Or, in other words, we've just increased your reach of affordability by about 30,000 bucks in a house. So that's pretty exciting for people that, you know, if you got pre qualified for a home six months ago. And you were told that four hundred thousand is your max purchase price, you might be a little bit frustrated that it's hard to find a house now in Slow County for four hundred thousand. They're few and far between and they're they're fought over. Um, well, yeah. hey, benefit for the same payment now, just because of these lower rates, you might be pre approved to four thirty now. And that might help you uh just be have access to a broader part of the market.
1: I would add to that too, is is I think the other side of the table's also very glad about these rates. The more purchasing power that the market has to buy my house, the more aggressive I can be on pricing that house. The mm. more, the more, I, the more I can expect, or should I say, anticipate multiple offers at the same time. Maybe bringing the house price up. Um, and I think what that really means is: does it mean that we're going to see inflation run ragged? Probably not. We've had some pretty solid years, but I think it means that you know we're in that. We're back, right back to where we were early 2018, where the seller could kind of dictate and wait and not have to worry so much about should I drop prices. Towards the end of the summer and most of last year, end of last year, pricing was dropping to get the bites.
2: In some places, in some I places, feel like that's a little bit. I'm not saying it was a
1: beller I'm not saying it was a buyer's market, but I w- what I do want to lead into is just saying that it is a good time to consider if you need selling. To sell
2: that property. Um, capital gains is a big deal, right? And so, um, you know, I was talking to a guy this last week about a flip said, Oh, I'm going to buy a house because it has a well problem. I'm going to solve the well problem for about 30,000 bucks as he anticipated cost here in it. And then I'm going to be able to sell the house for about $70,000 more profit for mitigating this issue. Right. So great. Uh, how about your short-term capital gains there? What do you mean? Oh, well, if you buy investment property or the bigger act here, the trigger of selling investment property, you're going to end up paying state and federal capital gains tax on the proceeds that you make there. So make sure that you analyze that cost as one of the expenses. It belongs right there under the cost to mitigate the well
1: issue. Yes, it You've does.
2: got federal tax. You've got state tax. You know, fifteen percent to each. That's going to be um, it's, a chunk. It's, it's a chink. Right? You got you missed part of it.
1: So, yep. Especially if you've already paid out your partners and then find that out after the fact, and liquidity's gone. Right.
2: So that question leads to ten thirty one exchange. And if you don't know what a ten thirty one exchange is, I'm excited to walk through this next segment with you. Um, I think everybody that owns real estate should know about ten thirty one exchange. Um, it can really save your bacon and it doesn't have to be just for investment property. It can also be even for a primary residence or a second home, which again, I think very few people know about. So
1: yeah. without further ado, we'd like to welcome, um, Bill Angove onto the the show. Bill, good morning. And thanks for joining us. Good morning. Did you hear our, our lead in there? No. Oh, too bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, we were, we were kind of setting you up with risk. What we just talked about was, um, the, well, we were wrapping up our discussion from opening the show on where interest rates are going currently in this marketplace and we segued nicely into the fact that sellers also have quite a bit, there's a lot of marketability with more first time home buyers able to buy a home and because of the affordability that it would lead into a natural discussion or a consideration of selling an asset and using a 1031 exchange. And I gotcha. thought I thought we'd bring you in now as the expert and also as, as a company that I've done business with and really enjoyed is um, Asset Preservation. You guys are up in the Sacramento region, is that correct, Bill?
3: Correct, our national headquarters is here in Roseville, California, and our other operation is out in New York. So to handle that timeline, the folks on the East Coast.
1: Yeah, I see. Are you guys publicly traded?
3: No, we are a subsidiary of a national title company, which is Stewart Title out of Houston, Texas. Okay. And they back our performance 100%.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, as I told you earlier in the week when we got on the phone just to prep for this, having you on the air today, that, you know, Jason and I, uh, Jason and Dan have been doing this show for over 10 years, and Central Coast Lending's real mission with this show is to educate people. I wanted to start by just kind of letting people know right off the bat, you know, very simply and a very elementary level, what is a 1031 and how does it benefit sellers?
3: Sure. Basically, a 1031 exchange uh, it gets its origins from the Internal Revenue Code. Um, 1031 exchanges have been around since 1921, but in, in essence, what it does is it allows someone who owns an investment property to sell and defer their taxes, both state and federal, and buy new investment property anywhere in the United States, and they can continue to do that throughout their lifetime. There's no limit on the number.
1: Outstanding. So, you know, Bill, I forgot. I put the cart in front of the horse. I did it. I do this sometimes. <laughs> I wanted, before we got into this questioning, just for you to quickly tell us about what a Qualified intermediary is, and how you help clients directly. You know what asset preservation does. You have the does.
2: cart before the cart before the horse. Let me <laughs> let me bring all of the listeners up to speed just real quick on what we're talking about. Is let's just say that you bought a house in 1990. It was your first home. You lived there. You did what a lot of people do: is you lived there until 96 and. You got a promotion, had some equity, things were good. So you bought a new, bigger house on the other side of town. Instead of selling your house, you rented it out. And so you've had a tenant in there and vacancies and, you know, the whole thing of managing that place and keeping it maintained. And then it gets to the point now where you're at a place in your life where this rental property over there, it's doubled in value or tripled in value. Uh, maybe you don't even have a mortgage anymore and you are thinking, I'm ready just to be done with this. I'm just going to sell it. So you move to sell it. Now you have, and Bill, you can cut me off and correct me when I say the wrong thing here, if I do, but let's just say, so you have this house that you bought for $250,000 that you're now selling for $500,000 or $600,000. You haven't lived in it in decades and when you sell it, they say, okay, well, your basis in it was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and you took a depreciation deduction through the years. So now your basis in this property is reduced down to a hundred thousand dollars. So you sell it for six hundred thousand bucks, and then the state and federal government say, Okay, six hundred thousand bucks income, hundred thousand dollar basis, five hundred thousand dollar gain. federal, 15% state. You're writing some fat checks for an asset of yours that you worked hard to have and maintain and keep and now sell. You've been paying tax your whole life. Now they want more.
1: So So, let
3: let me interject on the capital gains tax rates. And so everybody understands is the capital gains tax rates apply after you've owned an asset for longer than one year if someone was flipping a property, which generally they don't do an exchange on they pay ordinary income. Oh, okay. Back in to, back in two thousand thirteen they changed the capital gains tax rates that if you have gains in excess of four hundred thousand single or four fifty, I think it's like four sixty now, married finally jointly, that fifteen percent kicks up to twenty percent. And then there's the on top of that, um, you have what's called the net investment tax, which came along with Obamacare, which adds another 3.8 percent. So instead of 15 percent in your example, someone could be paying 23.8 percent, and then all the depreciation they've written off would be taxed first to 25 percent, and then we apply California. California now has a sliding scale uh, due to Prop 30 uh, with Jerry Brown. And- California's budget was in the red. Uh, California's sliding scale goes from 93 up to 13.3%, depending on how much income or gain they have.
2: Bill, pause right there for a minute. I'm going to try to clear this lump in my throat. <laughs> um, that's a ton of taxes. There's... Generally,
3: I'd like to say about 25 to 30% of their equity, You know, with, the, with an asterisk behind it, is going to go away in tax.
2: Wow. So, man, I get... The tax thing bugs me, and this is tax season, right? So this is a, yeah. <laughs> this is an interesting conversation we're having here. Um, but a couple things. Number one is those tax rates are subject to be increased too, right? I mean, they're part of the tax code, so a new administration coming along um, could have a more favorable or a less favorable impact on some of those rates too, right? Those go up and Absolutely.
3: down. Absolutely. Depends on who's in office and who's in Congress.
2: And are we currently in a place where, given the recent historical averages, are we at, above, or below what those averages typically run at?
3: We're actually below at the 15% capital gains tax rate. It, well, during uh, uh, Bush's uh, presidency, uh, he got it from 18 down to 20, 15%, and it's been much higher in the past. So probably at its all-time low at that level.
2: So, in other words, this also creates this opportunity, like Mike's talking about, for people that are deciding, okay, it's a good seller's market. The rates are good. I should have good activity and get a fair sales price. I'm ready to sell my house. You're also doing so in a tax environment that is among some of the better that have existed previously. Um, So, that being said, I don't want to pay uh twenty five to thirty percent of my equity in taxes, that makes my stomach hurt just thinking about it. So um one option then would be to take advantage of this ten thirty one exchange piece of the tax code. Um where and so describe that
1: for what us what are the rules of that.
2: Yeah and what how does how does the average person kind of simplify that concept and and understand how to navigate it.
1: Sure. I'll just kind of
3: go through an order of events. So someone decides to list their investment property, be it a rental house, on the market uh, with the realtor. Uh, They find a buyer. They uh, consult with us about the exchange process uh, that we can come into play before they list the property on the market. But generally, you don't need to involve the qualified intermediary until the property is under contract. Once the property is under contract, as a role of a qualified intermediary, and why people need to use a qualified intermediary is they cannot touch their proceeds. So we help them facilitate the exchange by preparing the documentation for that transaction such that when they close, those proceeds or their equity gets wired to our company to be held. We hold those funds until they're ready to close on the replacement property. What I'm really describing is what's called a delayed or forward exchange. Mm-hmm. The transaction, and we'll, we can get into more details on the timelines. I think you had that sketch a little further down the line.
1: Yeah, we'll touch on that more specifically. But I, I like your narrative so far, your elaboration. You so right. then your your so the rules specifically, because I think this is where Jason and I hear the interpretation of the law coming across our desk is we're going to do this, and then we can do this. And I think the rules really are w- with a classic exchange or the the more what was the term you used, a delayed exchange? Order a delayed exchange, technical yeah. term, yeah. Is you got to sell this house, and you've got X amount of days, and what are, the, what are the timelines, one more time, Bill, to...
3: Sure. Prior to the closing, they're going to set up the exchange with us. When they close, they have 45 days to identify in writing the potential property or properties they're considering buying. Mm-hmm. From that same closing date, they have 180 days to close on their replacement property. Keep in mind, they can exchange into any state in, in the United States. Right. Uh, they cannot exchange in Canada or Mexico or out of, out of the country.
2: And gotcha. so if if somebody successfully, so they sell their property, they don't touch the proceeds because they contacted you, had it all set up correctly, this money's held in trust for their transaction, they identify and close on this new qualified property within the right time of events. How much taxes are paid then on those proceeds at that point?
3: Well, the goal is if they don't want to pay any taxes, this is not the IRS rules, but if they don't want to pay any taxes, they should do two things. Number one, reinvest all of the proceeds that come out of the sale. So you take your sales price, going to pay some closing costs and commissions, maybe pay off a mortgage. They want to reinvest all of that cash into the new property or properties. They can buy multiple properties if they so choose. And then secondarily, they want to take on a loan that's the same or greater as their old loan. So you'll hear people say, buy of equal or greater value in exchange if you want it to be 100% tax-deferred. And that's pretty accurate, but you also get to take off the top, you know, the escrow and title fees and commissions.
2: Okay. Yep. Yep. So there is, there is then a strategy, if you follow those guidelines, where you could effectively pay no... Tax on transferring that asset basically from one property to the next.
1: Correct. Yeah, no income or capital gains and, tax.
2: Right? And I wanted, I wanted to ask you this too because this comes up from time to time. Um, is it true? And maybe, and maybe you're not the right person to answer this question, but I'll ask it and see if you are. Um, <laughs> is it true? So let's say that I do multiple 1031 exchanges where. I'm kind of moving that nest egg from one property to the next, growing in value throughout my life. Let's say I do it four times. And so Mm -hmm. now maybe I'm in a million plus dollar property and the 1031 exchange has more or less deferred that income and basis all the way along. If you at that point moved into that property and lived there as a primary residence for five years or something, would you then get the benefits of the primary residence exclusion and all that 1031 stuff go away? Or do you end up paying the piper at some point?
3: It's a complicated answer. The um, one thing is, is you keep exchanging and your basis doesn't really change too much just because you buy a bigger and better property you just defer the tax and it carries forward if you move into the property there was a change in 2008 that took effect in 2009 that said If you convert a rental to a residence, uh, let's say you've had the rental for four years past 2009 and you move into it for two, you're not going to be able to get the full $250,000 exclusion if you're single under the primary residence rules or the $500,000 married finally jointly. They're going to look at the number of years that you've owned it versus the number of years that you've lived in it. So if you're single and you're maybe entitled to Two fifty under the old rules, well, you've got four years of rental and two years of primary. You may only get $100,000 exclusion under that section code 121
1: primary residence. So the proportion of total ownership versus residency.
3: Really, taxpayers should talk to their tax person. We have a piece on our website. If I can promote that for a second, it's apiexchange.com. It has a ton of information on that.
1: Yeah, we're going to post your website on our Facebook page following the show today. I'll tell you what, Bill, we're going to get more into this. This very scary yet very exciting <laughs> conversation with you. We're going to be shoved out for a little commercial break here, but stick around. We'll, we, you and the listeners and us will all talk about 1031 exchanges right after this break. Stick around for more Mortgage Matters. <laughs>
2: Low interest
1: rates move a little lower.
2: All right, guys, welcome back.
0: Is that is that war? Who? What,
1: it is war. The is best
2: it, of war. It is
0: war. Low rider, brew, <laughs> rider. Low
2: interest, interest rates. rates. We should do a new commercial. and Make Dun, that. You probably have to license it Dun. though. That's a pretty iconic little uh, beat right there. Rider. <laughs>
0: Low rider. Low. All right, guys, welcome back to Mortgage rates. Matters.
2: Uh, we're in the middle of this conversation with Bill, uh, API Exchange. And um, now, Mike, you I, – I mean, I I'd, I'd chastise you a little bit. You got the cart before the cart before the horse. So now that people are paying attention, they know – when a 1031 exchange might come into play, I don't doubt some people are listening, thinking, oh, I had no idea that there was a path where I could defer that, and that changes my mind. Um, or when,
1: move back into a rental.
2: Yeah, well, and sometimes some of the investors that are listening are thinking about the house that they own, and one of the things that happens over time is that um, you lose... Some of the depreciation, it sort of goes down over time. You can actually run out of depreciation if you've owned an investment property for a long time. Um, So sometimes these guys just want to shuffle properties just to get into a new deal, take advantage of some better depreciation, improve their cash flow, and keep that thing going. In doing so, if you didn't realize that a 1031 exchange could um, save some of your bacon there on on the tax costs, you know, um, so kind of that bigger conversation. So if you're thinking about that, um, how do you pick, how do you pick an exchange coordinator? Um, you said, why are my money straight to you, Bill? And dang, I'm going to send a quarter million bucks to you. That sounds like a pretty big deal, and you're just going to hang on to it for some time while we work all through it, and then you're going to give it to somebody on my behalf. How does somebody cozy up to pick in the right uh, company to do that with?
3: Well, excellent question. Actually, Asset Preservation is going to be celebrating its 30th year in the industry uh, next year, and we've successfully helped over 185,000 exchanges take place. Uh, what people need to know about our side of the industry is we are unregulated basically in the united states there's no qualification license or otherwise to be a qualified intermediary so scrutiny is important you've got to look at in shopping for qualified intermediary not only price but how long have they been doing it what kind of security do they provide for your funds you know do they use a large institution to hold the funds is it held in a money market account or is it in, in Johnny Smith's uh, you know piggy bank and so you've got to look at that and then also you know is there a parent company that backs their performance so if you had a rogue employee that took off with some funds. Is there any kind of insurance or, or um, you
2: know, FDIC backing? Yeah, right.
3: So that's what those are the criteria that people should be looking at uh, and that's what they get with us is a, a large parent company that backs our performance uh, no losses, no funds going away because unfortunately there are have been some individuals that have come into the industry and like uh, people's money more than people like their money and either misinvested it, misused it stole it or left the country uh, so it's sad from that standpoint that there isn't any kind of federal regulation uh, but the SEC sees this as uh, too small of a fish compared to the the rest of the stock market, I guess
1: mm, understandable. But you know that all that stuff is that is important. All the things that you said, Bill. Um, I've had numerous interactions with some of your representatives, particularly Jolie. And um, I mean, the advice that you guys give a lot of times the QI, the qualified intermediary, is getting questions from the lender or escrow, like, "Hey, can we do this? Is this allowed? Is this allowed?" you know you guys aren't truly giving tax advice but you keep them on the straight and narrow to right. make sure that they're following the right the, what what the buyer's wishes are right
3: the exchangers, wishes, yes, yeah, but we're exchangers. not allowed for the regulations to give tax advice. Otherwise, we're disqualifying ourselves. But often we talk to CTAs and attorneys that just are up on 1031s, and we can show them just different parts of the, the Treasury regulations, the code, that they can help give advice to their client, whether they need to do an exchange or not, or you know how long they need to hold a property for, or like we were just talking about, converting a rental to a residence.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. It's probably a good time for me to say that our licensure also prohibits us from being able to give tax advice. And so the today's conversation and and really how we conduct ourselves in the day-to-day is that we can help um, alert you to things that you may not be aware of and then point you in the direction of the people that do, mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, this, this episode here is, um, I think – Doing a good job of showing that is that we can point you to people that could help you with this um, complicated transaction, make it pretty simple, um, and and they'll you guys obviously have resources available that you can help point people to if they really need the specific tax advice. Um, so,
1: yeah, I think uh, you know you guys have a great website as well, um, apiexchange.com. Forward slash ten thirty one dash exchange dash library, and that that's a one to go to. Obviously, we would put this uh, link on our Facebook page after the site. So, any listeners listening, well, that's something we would be happy to do. If if not done this weekend, we'll be done right after the weekend. Um, and then. Bill, let me ask you this. What are the five major reasons, reasons people do exchange other than just avoiding tax? Yeah, you know?
3: number one is tax deferral. Number two, they're preserving their equity. Uh, like I said, that, you know, if, if they sold, you know, 25 to 30 percent of their equity just goes away. So they're preserving the equity. And the big one that uh, that you guys would get involved with is many people have owned properties for a long period of time, and they may have the property free and clear, or they have very little loan. Uh, they can leverage into much larger property. Uh, they can leverage into different types of property. So that you've got a million dollar property. You could take $500,000 and go buy one property and to buy another million-dollar property and get a five hundred thousand dollars and buy another million dollars. So, so, you know the power of leverage. And then also, the misunderstood thing in exchanges is the term "like kind" in the code. People say, "Well, if I have to sell a rental house, I have to buy another rental house, right?" Well. That may have been the old-school way of doing it, but these days it's very broad, so they can diversify into different types of properties. So you could sell a rental house and buy an office building. You could sell five rental houses in exchange into a long-term triple net lease Walgreens or CVS store that has basically no management, so they can diversify out. Uh, Management Mm -hmm. relief is another reason. Um, You've got the boomers that own multiple rental houses or properties these days, and they're tired of the T's, as I call it: tenants, toilets, termites, trash, and taxes. (laughs) so they can get rid of some of those types of headaches and and get into a different product type, maybe a commercial building with a long-term tenant. And lastly, estate planning. Um, You know, the boomers are getting up there. They own a lot of real estate. And if they still like their kids, you know, their kids could inherit their property so they can buy properties maybe where their kids are located if they're not in the same town. So you've got one kid in in St. Louis and and maybe one in L.A. and, and one up in Paso. You know, they could diversify and buy investment properties where their kids are going to be uh, located, and eventually when they do pass away, the kids would inherit those properties. Mm,
1: mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, we talked about this last week on the show. We were talking about um, college housing a bit. If you, so let's say a parent and their child purchase a home together, we put them on the note together, the child lives and is residing in the home, and then they go to graduate. The parents don't really need to sell the property because they don't need the cash just yet if they lived in it for three years while they were in college how long do they have to hold it to turn into a 1031 or does it automatically become a 1031 when they exit and make it a rental well eligible excuse me I'm referring to it as a as a noun but how soon can they act on the 1031
3: right um there's two answers to that and let me change your scenario around just a little bit because what we see often is the parents will buy a, a rental property I'm or a place for their kid to live while they're going to college. By the way, my daughter's going to Cal Poly this fall. Um, so they buy a property uh, where the kid's going to go, and they may have two or three roommates. Instead of having the kid on title, they treat the property as an investment property. So their child would essentially pay rent along with the other tenants. Mm. So after they graduate, They could, right after that point, you know, three, four, five years down the road, do an exchange at that point. But if you have a kid on title with you and they're living there as their primary residence, you have to look at two options. Number one, we turn it into a rental. Hey, Bill,
1: let me do this. We're getting shoved out to the top of the hour break. Let's stop you there. We're on okay. the air with Bill Angove of, of um, Asset Exchange, and we're going to get back right after this break and get more. We into have our tax another 40,
0: 40 seconds here. So. We're going to
1: get back right after this break. I wanted to, I don't want to cut you off, Bill, to, to right in the middle of your, you know, narrative. But I'm excited to hear already, the strategy. Already, a, I, a Cal I'm,
2: Poly parent, yeah, going to be able to tell us how it is that you do this.
1: So, <laughs> listeners, take the extra time we're giving you here. Grab some coffee and get a, a legal pad and some paper and a pen. We're going to have Bill Ango from Asset Preservation come back right after the break and talk more about this great tax strategy planning in real estate. We will be right back with more Mortgage Matters.
2: One of my favorite uh, little Latin bass lines right here. You like that? It's brilliant. Yeah. So catchy. So good.
0: good? It's smooth. Is this the one
2: with Carlos Santana on it?
0: Yes. That guitar riff sounded awful. Carlos, I'm pretty sure that's Carlos, yes.
1: Definitely. Yeah. It's actually his album. Brilliant. Is on the on the track.
0: Ah. Oh. Oh. We are like, back. This
2: is hard to talk over this one. You just want to let this play out. Is that some cowbell I hear in there too?
0: <laughs> Probably. And know what Carlos and Rob. I got a fever. <laughs>
1: the only prescription.
2: <laughs> more
0: cowbell. It's ten
1: thirty one exchange.
0: That, huh? Right. I'll have to play this more often. Apparently. <laughs> yeah.
2: Bill,
1: you did you hang up on us? You still no, there? I'm All right. Great. We cool. like to have a little bit of music fun, right? But when we get back to the break, because feels like we should, we're we're in a radio station. You know? There it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, Bill, you were talking about some very interesting, very prudent stuff to this region. You said your is it your youngest or oldest?
3: My youngest.
1: Okay, is attending Cal Poly here in the fall? Yes, sir. Awesome.
2: Architecture. Yeah. Hey, that's fun. Lots of late nights there. I had to go through, I went through third year architecture there, Um, you know, basically that was just part of my major, I was under the College of Architecture before the work became less architectural, and I'll tell you what, man, drafting and rendering into the late hours in those concrete dungeons there, many, (laughs) many an hour
3: uh, someone told me yesterday she'll be spending a lot more time in the lab than she will in her dorm room.
2: Oh, yeah. That's a fact. There's a lot of work. Well, and then the thing of it is, is that uh that's probably true with most of the majors, but if you want to do well and you want to stand out, the time it takes in architecture, really, that you spend that extra time and it just adds up. So how exciting. Yeah, um, I'm excited for her. Cool. So, uh are you do you have grand plans of, of buying a house here in Slow for her to rent with the roommates, or are you guys gonna go the dorm route?
3: Or she has to live in the dorms the first year. Yep. And and have no car. And then actually uh, I have my a couple of my brother's friends, you guys know the Dolezals, Brad and Todd? Yeah. They own some apartments there, and so I said, Todd, you're gonna be her slumlord, but that's the second year.
2: <laughs> how do, how do you know the Dolezals?
3: Uh, my brother went to Cal Poly also.
2: No way. So I'll tell you. Um,
3: We're also partners in a houseboat with him up here.
2: When cool. Central Coast Lending first opened our doors in January of 2008, we rented space from the Dolezals in the San Luis Business Center down there. Oh, it's Los at Los Los, Los, like, Los, yeah, Los Los, Road. Los Osos Valley Road. Yeah. Um, and South Higuera over there they have, um, which is really a pretty cool little – um, incubation tank for new businesses because you can rent a space that's ultimately like an office within an office compound um, mm-hmm. and find your way into a spot that already has a desk and chairs so you kind of your utilities are there you just plug in your your phone and um, get rocking and um, man it was it was where we started in a, a room that was probably like 10 by 10. So
3: it's exploding here in Sacramento. There's a company that does that kind of incubator space. They're taking down 120,000 square feet, I think, at either 450 or 500 Capital Mall in Sacramento, just wow. for you know the.
1: That's the, right downtown. The,
3: Oh, yeah, right. Right I thought
2: a few years ago I thought along that same vein, one of the interesting things like a business idea from a tenant like landlord perspective would be if you bought a big building or constructed a big building and then made it like a a cosmetics compound where you made Mm -hmm. really small cubicle offices like that where you could then have your tenants be massage, hair – facials, you know, acupuncture, that whole thing. But just all those small places where a lot of those type of um, personal estheticians or personal care people, typically they're going to rent space under somebody bigger and pay rent Mm -hmm. to them. And it's kind of a mess. And so I was just thinking, man, if you built a a business like that, that was just all of that available where a tenant could just come and rent a chair and hang a shingle for their own salon right there, just them and a landlord, probably – be a pretty legit little business, um, and and I would be lying if I if I didn't say that um, the Dollazalls and that San Luis Business Center was one of the things that made me think about that because there's a variety of people that are in there um, and it works well. But if all of the services were congruent, you could really drive foot traffic. The synergy would just
1: be yeah off the chain.
2: So cool. We're talking yeah. 1031 exchanges, and um, I didn't say so earlier, but it's really evident to me that you've you've got your arms around this. Um, you have credibility with me for sure, and I'm sure everybody that's listening. So, um, thank you. It really, I think, brings clarity, and then also would help people have confidence that this thing does sound like a a high consequence, right? Financial transactions of high consequence. You want to know that you're really working with the pros. So, um, I really get that sense from you. We were, um, during the break, we'd mentioned a a couple of more things really to touch on is there's other caveats to this. I think in that vein of trying to help people understand the different scenarios where this strategy should be considered as a, a viable solution.
1: And you were mentioning the college student. I, I really wanted to hear the end of that. I'm sorry. I cut oh, do you, you want off, me to right? keep finishing on that? Yeah, let's just touch on that.
3: Okay. Do you want me to continue now or?
1: Yeah, please, if you would. Just, okay. You, you, um, I think you were saying the scenario where the parents would rent it to the kids right off the bat. Well,
3: yeah, but basically the parent would own the property, uh, but they treat it just like an investment property with a renter. But one of those renters would be their kid. Uh, and then they'd have, say, three roommates mm-hmm. who would also pay rent. And the general idea is for it to, to work in most CPA's eyes is they'd want to have even a lease agreement with their child and have the child um, pay close to her fair market rent. Uh, Another example of that is where you see families buy a property and they want grandma to live there, uh, but they're gonna do an exchange into it. Well, most tax advisors would say still, if you have grandma paying a dollar a month or a dollar a year rent, then that's really not held for investment under the 1031 guides. Um, So, but if you have, going back to the scenario, if you've got a junior on title with the parents, And they've lived there. One option to explore, and I'm not a CPA, is maybe Junior could take their 50% ownership under Section Code 121, which is the $250,000, $500,000 exclusion for their 50% of the sale. And parents could do an exchange on their half would be an option, depending on if the roommate situation or not. So
1: I understand so that would require that, that would is, require investing. right
3: so kid graduates from school, how long do they need to rent it for yeah. before they do an exchange? Uh, there isn't anything in the tax code that gives us that indication. Um, there's court cases out there. There's a private letter ruling from the IRS which gave someone an answer of two years. Um, some tax advisors say a year and a day straddling two tax years, so you're filing two tax returns. But they really look at, if you get audited, they're going to look at time, how long you held it for, and what was your intent. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the two key factors we work off of, but there's nothing in the tax code timeline-wise.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we were introducing that conversation, we we take a little bit of a different approach. Obviously, we're not thinking about the, the exit strategy so much. We're thinking about the recurring costs and the mortgage and the down payment options to get in. I mean, the average... Family that wants to invest in a property has to put at least fifteen percent down. That fifteen percent investment um, mortgage is that the interest rate on that fifteen percent down investment mortgage is not phenomenal. Plus, it also many investors are still going to require mortgage insurance, even though it's an investment property. So, we're coaching them to get twenty percent down, twenty five percent down for the best interest rate scenario. However, if junior or their their young daughter. Are in the house and on the note, they now have all of the primary residential down payment options t- um, to their at their discretion. All
3: right, interest you know? rates a little lower, I suspect too.
1: Yeah, interest rates are lower because we've got an occupant borrower in the home. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the parents can put three percent down. You know, they can do it at FHA if they wanted to. Um, we can do you know ten percent down. We can make it. More shall I say we can tailor it more to their the ability.
2: one the one pitfall here um, is that oftentimes, especially when you're dealing with like an incoming freshman, you got an eighteen year old kid um And they need to have a credit score. The FICO score is a problem. Yeah. And so this would just be kind of a PSA to any parents that are facing this with kids. It's not very difficult to get your kid a credit score. Mm -hmm. And so if you think this is a strategy that you're going to go for... You know, you got a 16 or 17 year old now, and you're thinking, now yeah, when we're 18, that's our game plan. Um, do yourself a favor and have a plan together of how to get them a credit score pretty rapidly after they turn 18. You could start by adding them to an account or opening um, a secured credit card with a, you know, the prepaid type of Visa thing, um, but just something that'll get a credit score to return. Because Mike mentioned this, and for anybody that's seen these numbers, they're super compelling. Um, the the market um, like Wall Street really heavily penalizes people that um, buy investment property with minimum down payment twenty um, percent down fifteen is really the minimum but you just get absolutely hammered in closing costs and interest rate. Twenty percent down, it's a little bit less. You can clearly see that the market wants you to be able to put twenty five percent down. The interest rate and closing costs are so much better with twenty five percent down. But not everybody has access to that kind of money, especially given the high property values today. You want to buy a place in in slow next to Cal Poly for your for your um, college age child. You know, you're talking a six or seven hundred thousand dollar purchase potentially. Twenty five percent down on that is a huge chunk of money. If you have the foresight to make sure that your son or daughter is developing a credit score quickly so that they can be on the loan and you could go the path of this non-occupant co route, you get access to the owner-occupied down payment, interest rate, and closing costs terms. Those are, that's significant. So mm-hmm. um, sorry to kind of hijack the thread there, but I think there could be some people that are listening that are trying to figure out what those next few years look like as they put their center dollar into that uh, college situation.
1: Yeah. Well Bill, I appreciate you elaborating on that. And then as you know from having friends here and, you know, you're gonna be re you're gonna relearn when you come to visit that this is a place that people like to vacation and eventually like to buy properties out on the coast. You know, we've got a, a nice we've got two nice lake communities here. Um plenty of beach real estate. Mike, I saw your second home video on YouTube. You
2: did? Yeah. You have like your Hawaiian shirt on because you just come back from Hawaii and you're like, I want to tell you looking tan and, yeah. and svelte. and you're like, I want to tell you guys about uh you know, I just got vacation on my mind from having been on vacation, so I want to talk about vacation homes. Yeah. It's a great video.
1: Thank you. Um Is there a My Time my hand? <laughs> No, I was back. I was but it fully still back. Still,
2: sort of had the mai tai grip. Just was empty of the mai tai. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, you're you're talking about um, second homes. How's that tie into this conversation?
1: Well, Bill, I mean, I'm curious if if I let's say I utilized the home, and you know, life happens. We had a great run four, five, six years. We went to the the beach every summer. But now I just I'm thinking about selling it. I need to get rid of it. I want to liquidate it. I'm getting older and I, maybe I want to have, you know, get, start planning for retirement better. And I don't want my, my equity in real estate, or maybe I, you know, I don't know exactly what to do, but we're not going to use it much anymore. How could I roll? How could I utilize the 1031 exchange for something like that? I mean, I haven't had it. Are you thinking of
3: selling the vacation home or buying a vacation home with the exchange?
1: Ah, great question. So I bought a vacation home five years ago. And I've mm-hmm. been I've been loving it and using it. And when I'm not in it, I I use, um, I do have some vacation rental with this property. So okay. some people are are leasing it for a short period of time, and then now I'm I'm making the I'm sitting at my desk here and I'm thinking maybe I should sell this thing. How do I avoid tax on selling a vacation home? Is there
3: right. a strategy? Well, there were there was a couple things that. Uh, Came into effect a few years ago. There was a court case where you had someone who didn't exchange on a second home, which second uh, home basically is it's all personal use, no rental whatsoever. And they bought another second home. The IRS audited. They they appealed to the tax courts, and the tax courts agreed with the IRS that under the 1031 guys that that that's not held for investment. So the IRS issued a revenue procedure, which is guidance for people that own vacation homes, and they basically said, look, if you want to do an exchange for the two years before you do the exchange, personal use can't be any more than two weeks, and you need to rent it out for two weeks or more for those two consecutive years before you do the exchange. Then once you do the exchange, if you buy another vacation slash rental, personal use can't be more than two weeks each of those two years afterwards, and then rent it out for two weeks or more to help support that it's being held for investment, not just a second home. So in your circumstance, and you, if you want to do an exchange on it, you know you probably want to minimize the personal use and, and keep up the rental and treat it as an investment property on your tax return, like depreciating yep. it, cetera,
1: yeah, and writing up f- the
3: mortgage interest.
1: You still have it. I need to flip the way that I hold that thing now on my balance sheet and show some income. Probably
2: similarly, but I was thinking as Mike was laying out his example there, um, I was thinking of somebody that maybe is a little bit different. Like going back to that, um, the, the scenario I painted earlier about the person that bought the house, lived in it for a while, made it an investment property. It's 20 plus years later now. And I'm tired of being a landlord, all the T's that we described. That was great. What
1: are the T's? Oh, I love it.
2: Termites, tenants, trash, tenants. tenants.
3: Oh, termites, trash and taxes.
1: Yeah. You know so, he's got it learned in a certain way. You can't. So I'm tired <laughs> yeah. of the
2: I'm tired of the T's, but you know, it's been twenty years worth of owning real estate. Things are pretty good. I'm in a good place now. Right. And I want a second home. So maybe it's time to sell my rental in downtown slow and buy myself a place up in Tahoe where as I move towards retirement, I have a second home. Can you exchange that way or would it be required that I also add some vacation rental to it in order to keep it as an investment?
3: that's what the revenue procedure talked about, and just for for those that are interested in what the number is, it's Revenue Procedure 2008-14. It's also, we have a vacation home handout on our website also, about a five-page handout that discusses these various scenarios. Uh, but if you're going to do an exchange from the rental from downtown Slow to Tahoe, uh, you're probably going to want to, or your tax person would probably tell you, you want to keep it you know, on the rental marketplace. You know, whether it be ski leasing it to to people that have ski teams up there Mm -hmm. and then keep the person use fairly minimal for at least the first couple of years that you own it.
1: Right. Right. It must be a rental. I mean, you can rent it for less than 365 days a year, i.e. the days that you're in it, but it must be a rental.
3: Well, yeah, there's not it, it doesn't have to be rented the entire time. You know, you could have it on VRBO, you could do a ski lease for 3 months, et cetera, But you want to be showing income that, and and keep the personal use minimal. Sure. Uh, just in case you were audited by the Franchise Tax Board here in California or IRS that you're supporting the exchange idea not just the uh, a second home per se.
1: Makes total sense. Makes total sense. We got about 2 minutes here before we get into one more of our commercial breaks bill, but um I've really enjoyed having you on the show because there are so many questions that come up. Um, one that comes up quite a bit is, I don't want to, I don't want to start that forty-five day clock and have to identify a property. I want to buy a property first, and then can I sell my rental afterwards? You know, kind of do it in reverse. Let's do it in reverse.
3: Yeah, actually, in the year 2000, the IRS issued also a revenue procedure allowing for reverse exchanges under a certain um, structure. Uh, That structure is that you find a great replacement property, maybe it's an REO, maybe it's not, uh, and you're under the gun to close it within 30 days, hypothetically. Uh, If you have the ability, with cash or... With a lender, uh, what happens is you'd contract to buy that property. That contract would be assigned to what we call an exchange accommodation title holder. In English, it's an LLC that we create that closes on the replacement property on behalf of the exchanger with their funds. Or funds from their cash and a lender, and then they have 180 days in reverse to sell their old property gotcha. in exchange into that or the one that we're holding for them, because you cannot exchange into a property you already own. Okay? Uh-huh. You cannot pay off the mortgage on a primary residence. You cannot pay off the mortgage on a rental. So, in this case, they use us, the qualified intermediary, who holds title to that property they want to buy, and then within 180 days, they sell their old property and in exchange into that new property.
1: Awesome. You know, and we're going to take this break in just a second bill, but when we come back, Jason and I are going to tell you about a great mortgage product that'll allow you to have the ability to finance that property that you've identified before you sell the relinquishing property. Um, it's a cross collateralization loan and it, it is actually going to help many people because in other words, they have to have the cash in their pocket, right? Or they'd have to go get a loan on that other house and, and show, you know, income and all these other things. We have a way to help them with that. So You know what we're going to do? We're going to take one more break. Last break of the show? No, we have one more after this. Okay, we're going to take our scheduled break. Second to last break. Second to last break for our lovely sponsors. And, you know, people, these sponsors are not just, you know, people that pay us money so that you can listen to the show for free. Many of them we do business with directly. So if you're thinking about any of the services they offer, please give them a try. And I'll tell you what, we'll be right back with more mortgage matters after the break. Cruising down the road in our convertible Chevy Impala. That's what this feels like. Uh Yeah. Do
2: it again.
1: Yeah. Well, listeners, we are... For those of you who just chimed in, maybe you've just gotten out of the house and you're starting your errands, we're on the phone today with Bill Angrove from Asset Exchange... Asset Preservation, Inc. And... uh, Sorry, Bill. And... um. It's been a great conversation. We've been talking about the pros, cons, or should I say the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1031 exchanges. And um, we left off with the, va- we talked about a vacation rental, but we were talking about a reverse exchange there, right, Bill? That's what we were going into right before Correct. break. break. Mm-hmm. Just take me quickly through that one more time in the elevator version of how someone would, you know, consider a reverse exchange.
3: Um, the easiest way to describe it is they found a replacement property they want to buy, but they have to close it first because they may have some fix-up time where they need to get the tenant out of their old property, and that may take longer. Yep. So essentially what happens is they use us, qualified intermediary. We form an LLC on their behalf, that LLC, with funds from the exchanger, Mm-hmm. or combination of cash and a loan, purchases and closes on the replacement property, from that point, the taxpayer has 180 days to sell their old property and exchange into the one we're holding for them. Right. It's a great tool, especially for people that are nervous about the 45-day identification period. If they do a forward exchange, this kind of takes that out of the picture, but they have to have the ability to buy first and sell second.
1: Right. And people, I mean, people hear the word LLC. I mean, they're thinking, oh, I'm just, you know, I own this as an individual. Maybe they already have an LLC. I can't imagine, you know, creating that LLC is a terrible headache. It's purely for the qualified intermediary, right? It's for you to to deal with the funds after the asset closes.
3: uh, well The LLC that we create is, is an entity, and we, we allow the taxpayer to name the LLC. So we've got John and Nancy Smith that can be
1: one two three you know, home in, lane. In,
3: in an S-LLC. So ultimately when they sell their old property and they exchange into the one we're holding, they, they acquire the rights of that
1: LLC from us. It's transferred to them. I see. I see. Which is free the
2: first year and $800 of tax filing after that. Sure. Right. (laughs) So sometimes you only want it for one year.
1: Yeah. Right. But I understand that. And so what we see is the individual, so you painted a perfect picture. Maybe you've got tenant situations you're dealing with. Um, You know, maybe you uh, um, were bequeathed this property and you found, and it's in another region of California, let's say, and you want to buy something closer to home so you can manage it, and you see the perfect property that pops up on your street, so you're thinking, ah, i got to hurry. I don't know. I I don't have my other house ready to list, but I want this house right next door or on my block. You would do this. You would exchange in reverse. You would buy the one on your block. Now you're going in to sit with Jason, and Jason tells you, okay, well, if you want to buy a property that's an investment property, these are your options, right, Jay? And yeah. You're only going to have, you know, the 15 percent down is the minimum. Jay's going to, Jay's going to help you understand this. But I'm going to pretend that I'm Jay now because there's a there's a small technical difficulty. But what I was going to get at is how many options would you have for someone that only had 10 percent in cash that wanted to buy an investment property?
2: Oh, you're almost drawn dead right there.
1: But I really um, want this thing.
2: If you really want it. Um, you need more down payment, and like you alluded to before the break, there's some options for you in terms of um, what's probably historically known as a bridge loan, um, because the the name bridge loan sort of um, you know it's a it's a good idea of what this does. It bridges you from one property into the next, and usually what happens in a traditional bridge loan is you encumber both properties so I have a property I'm selling and a property I'm buying and my equities in the property that I'm selling so what I want to do is you know basically encumber both of them so that the equity of my first property is the really the source of down payment for the second property and so then you you cross collateralize them and then after the the property you're selling is gone those proceeds are then you know, that releases the first property of the lien and then the proceeds are the down payment into the second. So you kind of end up with your final loan amount. That's that's usually one of the only options or opportunities available to people that are trying to, buy a property and close before their sell because you need that down payment. Other options, like since you, I feel like you asked me like a a Jeopardy question. Um, There, there's probably a couple of other options. One would be, um, I've seen people do like, yeah, an IRA distribution or borrow against a retirement account. There's certain types of accounts where if you take the money, um, and you are in possession of it for less than six months before you pay it back that you can pay it back without penalty. So I've seen people try that. To me, that's also a little bit riskier though you're taking that money out of the market. and then if anything goes wrong with your your uh, purchase and you have that money liquidated and you can't get the financing or something back in place, then potentially you get socked with some taxes. So I don't love that strategy, but I've seen people do it.
1: That's really doubling down, right? You're getting some you're getting into an IRA where you could pay income tax on that thing if you don't get the money back in. Um, and then what I see also many times is people say, Oh, well it's, it's okay. Look, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my brother to give me the other 15% and I'll give you 25% Jason. And, um, and then when I sell my house, we'll go ahead and we'll just wash it all out. But unfortunately, Um, the mortgage guidelines don't allow for gift funds on an investment property. That's right. And you're not going to buy this based on what Bill's been educating us all day here. You're not going to buy this as a primary residence or a second home right off the bat. You're going to want to buy it as an investment property. You're going to want to buy it as an investment property. So what we do, we have a great bank that's based right here in California that allows us to a cross collateralize. So we would lean on the equity from the home that you're going to eventually sell maybe the one with the tenants in it, maybe the one that's not ready to list. And we can, we can like Jason said, combine the total equity between the house you're relinquishing eventually and the house you're going to buy. And in many cases, we can lean against the old house up to you know, the total value of its worth so that we don't have to bring any cash in on the purchase.
2: The only fly in the ointment that I see here is the way that the new property is held in LLC for a short period of time. I guess on the upside, the bank that you're describing is it's a it's a private, um, correct. And they do loans to entities like LLC, so it probably work.
1: It, it would work, work in this case. Yeah. And I, I honestly believe the reason they do loan to LLCs is for this very product right here, for this yeah, very scenario. You're probably right, where Bill's got to have an LLC created, and um, but what I would like to say is this: you know, there's there's many different ways to skin this cat and what what requires it requires some serious planning
2: yeah and a team of professionals and so um, as we're kind of nearing the wrap-up of this segment I want to ask you um, Bill, do you anything we've missed or any pressing points that you'd like to make
3: I w- just had one other twist on the reverse exchange the the one format we've been talking about is having the qualified intermediary take title of the new property the other format um, if they own their relinquished property free and clear, is they can deed their old property over to us and then use, especially if the lender is leery about loaning to an LLC that's asset preservation, it's not going to guarantee that loan. They deed the old property to us and then put the money down and borrow the balance of the purchase price and borrow by that property themselves, the replacement property. So that's the other format. There's pros and cons to both formats that, that mm-hmm. you need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. That's the other way to do it. So and saying, they all should know that reverse exchanges are a lot more expensive than a straightforward exchange.
1: Sure. Yeah. There's Ooh. G- yeah. Expenses. We never really
2: talked about the the price of... Um, oh, right into the end. Yeah. What's the average price to execute an exchange?
3: So a forward or delayed exchange, when they close their old property, we charge a flat fee of $700. And then when they close their new property, we charge the other side of our fee, which is $300, and that pays for up to three purchases. So kind of out the door, if you will, our fee runs $1,000, $700 when they sell, $300 when they buy. Reverse exchanges, I can just give you a range because it does. Um, it depends on whether they're paying all cash in the reverse exchange scenario or whether they're using a lender, but the range runs eight to $10,000. Okay. So it's got yeah. to make financial sense for them to want or need to do a reverse exchange, depending on their their tax liability they're facing. Yeah, based on uh, the cost basis.
1: Sale. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Puff Daddy here, but more pun- more money, more problems, right? More real estate, <laughs> more real estate, more problems. If someone had multiple units, you know, do you see a lot of people with multiple units sell them off and go into one unit, Bill? Or are you seeing it go yeah, the other way?
3: We just had one where the folks owned about 20 properties. And what they did, they wanted just to get out of them there because we were tired of all those T's we talked about. And so they sold them in groups of three to four and consolidated those into maybe one large commercial property here or there. Uh, so we do see that. The important thing to remember, though, that if they are selling multiple properties and they're combining them into one exchange, when the first one closes... That starts that 45- and 180-day clock ticking, so they've got to get the other ones sold and closed, typically within the 45 days of the first one closing, so they know what the value to identify.
2: Perfect. Bill, um, thanks so much for being with us today. I uh, really appreciate your level of knowledge and professionalism, and um I'd, I'm really happy to be made aware of you guys. I hope some folks listening are, too. Are we promoting you specifically, or just people go to the website and contact through the... They can
3: contact uh, anybody in the company. Um, I'm the Northern California um, Division Manager, so I cover basically Bakersfield North, but uh, I'm on the road doing seminars and doing things like this, so they can call in and talk to anybody here in the office and get answers.
2: Perfect. APIExchange.com and um
3: the phone number is 800-282-1031
2: 1031 you got that in there too perfect uh bill thank you very much for being with us today i uh, sure appreciate your time and your knowledge your you help us in furthering our goal of making sure that our county and all of our listenership is uh savvy and educated to to things so i, I really appreciate your help today
3: Great. I'm glad to be on. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Bill. All right. Have Enjoy the
2: rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Um, 1031 Exchange. Sometimes it happens where regular old first-time home buyer is out there looking for a house, and they'll run into something on the contract that uh, says buyer agrees to cooperate with seller's 1031 exchange.
1: Yeah. That's a good point. Let's bring up that stuff.
2: Um, yeah, we see that and it can make people nervous, but for the most part, it really doesn't, uh, have much impact on the buyer. Um, they're still just buying a property from a seller that's able to sell. And if nothing else, I think it just, um, speaks a little bit to the urgency. Um, the, they understand that the seller in consideration of this offer, wants it to be known that they're trying to complete this within a period of time that allows them in order, you know, to do the 1031 exchange. Yeah. And I, I just say by and large, there's, there's not a whole lot of downside as a buyer, not really any downside I can think of as a buyer to being a part of that transaction.
1: Except for the all eggs in one basket homeless scenario where you get down to our rent closes at the end of March, which is today's the 30th, that's tomorrow. So Monday, we've got to close, and the seller's still saying, look, I'm I'm not quite ready yet. I haven't identified. I don't have to sell this house. So, which, But real estate agents that have done this for a while, they've been in the homeless discussion. Right,
2: and I would say too is that a big part of the way that you can manage that is Um, and I would expect that the real estate agents are taking care of this as well as escrow has something to do with this too, but just making sure that the exchange intermediary is well aware of the timeline Mm -hmm. and that they have, um, no specific, uh, calendar objections to the proposed timeline. Um, and that also that they're just making their way through their transaction, Mm -hmm. uh, with, appropriate speeds so that you don't end up in a situation where you're needing to move into the property, but the exchange is not in a position yet to receive the funds. That would yeah. That would be the bummer there. Yeah. But and we it, don't see that happen very often.
1: And there's really no arbitrage there for the buyer either. There's it's kind of audacious to be like, well look, you're you're not paying any capital gains. Why don't you give us a bigger seller credit? <laughs> you know? It's not, it's not like that. It's more that they're just exercising this tax code to the best of their ability and you're getting the house that you want. Sometimes I'm
2: even surprised that I see it listed on the purchase contract. I feel like it's almost...
1: um, That can be discussed.
2: Well, and it's just almost, it's just superfluous information. I feel like uh, real estate agents, though are schooled up to disclose, disclose, disclose. Yep. If you have anything going on that potentially impacts the outcome or, you know, so you just anything, you're just better off to lay your cards on the table so that the other players involved know that. Um, and I would think that as a seller, one of the main reasons you want to disclose that in the contract is that should there be an issue later down the road with the exchange needing more time, you probably don't want to be introduced to the exchange in day 40 of the 45-day astro, right. being the purpose of a delay. You would probably want to... Um, at least know there was an exchange so that if there was a delay associated to it, you felt like you you were aware that that was part of the transaction. So
1: exchange is the same as the seller's right for contingent replacement. I mean, it's the same thing. If listed as such, I right. mean, there's
2: there's also a way that it can not be something that could let them out of the contract. Most of the time, the verbiage just says that the buyers agree to cooperate. That's right. It doesn't say that in the event the exchange is unsuccessful, that the contract is void. I've never seen that kind of verbiage, although I could see that um, being necessary in some situations. All right, we're going to go ahead and take the final commercial break here of the final show. Final. final, final. And take some time out to thank the sponsors that helped make the show possible. Uh, if it wasn't for these guys, you guys would have to pay to listen. So uh, Linda Manier, and we'll be back in a minute here with more Mortgage Matters.
0: a little different mix of soul man <laughs> but it works yeah right? who is this
1: lyrical yeah. non-lyrical
0: yeah, non-lyrical it would be like uh soul
1: man from this belushi, is belushi right? and yeah. uh Acroid.
0: it's the mer- musical version instrumental version of
1: it <laughs> <laughs> sweet all right, guys, welcome. feels like a game show. <laughs> welcome back. Um, Be sure to put your tray tables up. Yeah. Get sure. your seats in their upright position. uh, positions.
0: Yes. Speaking
1: you of which, did you see land.
2: that uh, Boeing? So Boeing has released their software update on that. Um, the Max. The 737 Max 8 or mm. 8 Max. What's it called? The 8, I think it's 8 just Max. the Max. Come on. There's an 8 in it. Dear
1: uh, Google
0: Max 8 Max 8 Yeah, right?
1: Mm-hmm. You guys look that stuff up quick.
0: No, I just um, happened to well, I happened to see on before I came in here, I came in on Wednesdays and I became came in on Wednesday. Definitely Wednesday. You know, I was watching, definitely Wednesday. Yeah. I was watching um I was watching the TV before I came in. I was getting ready to come in and uh Southwest had one that was uh Yeah,
2: they, they had to make
0: moving. an emergency landing. They had to landing. make an emergency landing on a Max 8. Yeah, oh, no. it was being moved. It wasn't hauling uh, passengers anywhere. Yeah, there it's was just a temporary permit a Southwest to move the plane.
2: plane. They had two pilots on board and they were just moving it, mm-hmm. and one of the engines was yeah, out. Overheating, overheating and sending some. So, probably completely unrelated yeah, to the rest probably, of this. And this but... never would have been a news story yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Um, although, well, you know, eleven like, minutes in the air and an emergency landing had to turn and go back to the. Um, yeah. You could only assume that that plane would have been full of people and probably would have made the same emergency landing, mm-hmm. um, and probably been fine, right? Yeah. I mean, they're having motor trouble. Those things can fly and land on one motor, so yeah. Yeah. it would probably been fine anyway. But it's newsworthy, of course, because it's a it's, it's a it's Max a Max Eight. 8. <laughs> wow. Um, so anyhow, um, before the guest bill was on talking about 1031 exchanges, we were talking all about, uh, the market. And I keep saying this, I'm just going to say it again because I feel like a kid walking through the Disney gates. I'm super excited about what's going on within the market right now. Um, we've got really low interest rates. They're, they're lower and feel like they're dropping by the day. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just super exciting for us. It, it creates refinance opportunities for some people. So again, I'm I'm not going to super labor the point here, but I just want you to know that if you have an interest rate that's higher than four and three quarters, you should call us and let us do that custom evaluation for you on what you got and what it would look like to refinance. Um, I want you to know that there's no obligation to call us, there's no fee. Uh, we're not expecting or requiring you to do a loan. We really view it as an opportunity to familiarize ourselves with the the big bullet points here of your transaction mm-hmm. and your life, your use of that property, and, and make a pitch to you.
1: And we're comfortable having the dialogue with you about your FICO too. I think a lot of times people say, ah, I mean, what if it doesn't work? I don't want to pull my credit score. Sure. You know, we can um, do that before yeah. pulling.
2: The uh, Absolutely. The the big purpose here is just to let you guys know that what we want is for you to feel uh, safe and confident to reach out to us and let us take a look for you. Um, 805-543-LOAN rings all of our offices. <coughs> You'll be able to find a loan officer that'll take the time to walk you through your options. and. You know, sometimes it just happens to be that we look at a scenario for somebody and end up coming back and saying, you know what? you're not yet. You, you're you going to keep what you got for the time being and keep waiting for the market to improve a little bit more. Um, that becomes more likely the less you owe. So I probably should throw the asterisk on there. If you owe more than $400,000 and your loan is um, – interest rate greater than 4.375, you're on the the, the short list. This is like a, um, a no-brainer. You should call and let us walk you through it. If you owe two or 300,000 bucks, it's gonna be a little bit less compelling, um, still worth evaluating, and let us uh, look at it and, and see, does it make sense? And it's all about the cost versus the savings, right? Yeah. That is just what has to be considered in that situation. Um, and then, of course, for other people, if you have mortgage insurance, you should be calling. We we want to help you. If you're listening right now and you have a four and a half and you owe 400 plus thousand bucks, you might call. Just get on the radar. Start exploring what it looks like and, and make sure that we know um, interest rates, many people don't realize this, but mortgage interest rates come out every single day with the open of Wall Street. So we wake up here on the West Coast to today's interest rate. Yep. And then once the markets get a couple hours of trading under their belt, see what happens in the stock market, see what happens in the bond market, it's not uncommon to see reprices happen throughout the day. One of the reasons we pay such close attention to the economic data is that comes out every day is when you get reads on things that are primary data source, right? They're market moving data like new home sales or a jobs report, Um, big things like that, announcements over trade agreements, um, announcements over votes on Brexit, things like this can be um, significantly market moving in the middle of a session so we'll oftentimes we'll see interest rates improve or get worse throughout the day and yep the timing of that is pretty critical. Sometimes we hit these windows where and I want to knock on wood, I hope that this isn't one of those situations, but sometimes we look at the interest rates and we start salivating, right? Right now we're seeing about you know, eight days in a row of mortgage rates dropping improvement. Um, that can all double back and be gone tomorrow. Sure. Um, it takes one foul day in the market with some great news or something that just news that is not bond friendly and we could give it all back quick. So, my point is you can't wait and try to catch the falling knife. What you need to do is make contact. Let's get a game plan together. Let's get documentation together. Sometimes these refis are a lot like pre-approval. Mm-hmm. Get in, do all the work, get all the documentation, have it yep. all together. Maybe you haven't locked yet because you're waiting. If four and an eighth isn't particularly appealing to you at no points and what you really need to have is 4% or 3.875, Perfect. Let's get all of our ducks in a row and know what our window of execution is because if that comes to fruition one Tuesday at, at 9.32 a.m., let's not be trying to scramble and get to each other on the phone or the email, we should be in a position where I'm well aware of your parameters and can pull the trigger for you and then send you an email later in the day saying, hey, good news, Mike, got you that rate that you were after it finally came to fruition and it's time for us to pull the trigger on this and order an appraisal and, and get real serious. So that's my call to all of you guys is um, if you're in one of those camps, you just want to get an evaluation, get a checkup on the loan that you have. Uh, reach out to us, centralcoastlending.com. Um, there you'll find plenty of information complete with a secure online loan application. If you're listening right now and you know that Central Coast Lending is the, is the mortgage company for you, you're hearing this 4.75 talk and you're going, man, I have five and a quarter Um just hop on the website and fill out a loan application.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We'll we'll get that take care of you and usher you through the process. Um, any of those folks that are listening that still have a five and a quarter or a five and a half, you missed a window a couple of times here, don't miss this one too. It'd be real smart for you to to come in and get it. Um, get yourself all squared away. Um
1: Those who jumped on the adjustable rate mortgage, you know, right in the midterm election and said, I'm gonna do a five one because it prices out a bit better. Consider changing now. I love what you say, Jason, about let's say you're 26, you're you're in your twenty-six, you're twenty-four. We can do a twenty-four year mortgage. You know, we don't have to jump back to thirty. Yeah. I love looking at the twenty year mortgage. And look
2: at all those options. So I hope you guys are enjoying your March madness and baseball of course baseball season is underway hope you're enjoying this sunshine that we got going on um thanks much for being with us today thanks to bill from apiexchange.com the 1031 um
1: qualified intermediary
2: qualified intermediary that you want thank you Mike points for being with me today and giving Dan a day off um yeah that takes us out we'll be back see you guys in April for the next live episode of Mortgage Matters